When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the second debate of Intelligence Squared Crypto, our new series exploring the biggest questions around the rise of cryptocurrency in partnership with Equinix, the Nasdaq-listed digital advisory. We hope you enjoyed today's debate, and if you do and want to be in the virtual audience for the third Intelligence Squared Crypto debate, you can click to register for free in the podcast description. But now let's go to the host, Senior Editor at The Economist, Anne McElvoy. Hello and welcome to the second installment of Intelligence Squared Crypto, a new debate series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Equinix. In the coming weeks, we'll be bringing you leading voices debating the disruptive rise of cryptocurrency and how it is shaping the future of money and our responses to that. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy from The Economist, and tonight our debate contention is crypto versus the environment. Before we begin, I'm going to ask you, the audience, to submit your pre-vote to get a sense of where your opinions lie. You can vote yes or no on the question, is crypto a threat to the environment, via the poll coming up on your screen. If you're unsure, you vote undecided. Take us a little while to calculate that, so please vote now, yes, no, or undecided. And just while the many goblins in the background do the counting, I'll warm us up a bit for the debate and read you the results of a Twitter poll that's been run in the aftermath of our first debate, which was Bitcoin versus gold. The Twitter audience voted 82% Bitcoin, 9% gold and 9% undecided. But you can catch up with the debate and find out how the live audience voted on the Intelligence Squared podcast or on the YouTube channel. I'm not going to give away too much, but it was a very different outcome. So have a look at those and and see which side you fall on. We touched on the environment in that debate, but tonight we're going to go into this argument in greater depth. It's estimated that the global Bitcoin network currently consumes around 133 terawatt hours of electricity every year. That's roughly equal to the consumption of Sweden. Crypto skeptics say that energy demands of the network are a threat to the environment and that further adopting cryptocurrency will lead to a very harmful rise in emissions. However, crypto advocates say that the figures used to denounce crypto are misleading. When you examine the biggest contributory factors to climate change globally, well, Bitcoin is responsible for a relatively tiddly 0.13% of annual carbon emissions. Unlike the traditional finance system, they would say networks like Bitcoin continue to make strides in adopting renewable energy with initiatives like the Crypto Climate Accord, committing producers to net zero by 2040. Let's have a look and see. Yes, we have some results. This is the moment of truth and my personal moment of Eurovision. 
So, yes to the contention 40%. Crypto versus the environment. Yes, it is a threat, 40%. 26%, no, it isn't a threat. And 34%, undecided. We always like that because it uh, gives us a lot to play for. 40%, yes. 26%, sorry, no. 34%, undecided. Well, let's uh, get to our speakers and introduce them because they're going to take this away. Our speaker arguing that crypto is a threat to the environment tonight is Alex DeVries. He's founder of Digiconomist. That's a platform dedicated to exposing the unintended consequences of digital trends. He started the Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index. That's one of the oldest and most cited sources in the Bitcoin environmental and energy debate. So Alex is going to speak for six minutes. We'll then turn to Lynn Alden. I'll introduce her more thoroughly when we've heard from Alex. But Alex, the floor is yours. Yes, thank you. When I started running the Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index back in 2017, Bitcoiners joked that the network's energy consumption only represented the annual amount of electricity consumed by Christmas light in the US. Now, four years later, this, has, this amount has gone up more than 20-fold, putting the energy consumption of the Bitcoin network on par with the electrical energy consumption of a country like Argentina. And at the current price, the network could soon consume as much energy as all data centers around the world combined. So that includes all data centers we use for traditional finance, social media, cloud service, the internet itself. It will represent 1% of our total global electricity consumption. All this energy is being spent on a process known as mining. In order to create new blocks of transactions for Bitcoin's underlying blockchain, Bitcoin miners have to participate in what is effectively a massive game of guess the number. Only those who guess correctly are allowed to create the next block for the blockchain and will be given a reward for doing so. The whole Bitcoin network currently generates more than 140 quintillion, that's 140 with 18 zeros, of such guesses every second of the day non-stop. Even so, a new block will only be created every 10 minutes on average. If the computational power in the network increases, the software just makes it more difficult to guess the right number, which keeps the issuance rate steady. Incorrect guesses, which means almost all of them, serve no further purpose than requiring potential attackers of the network to make an even more of those useless computations than the ones currently doing so if they want to do harm to the network. As Bitcoin miners get paid a fixed amount of Bitcoin for every block they create, their ultimate income strongly depends on the Bitcoin price. That means that as the Bitcoin price goes up, the profitability of mining increases as well, and that also increases the incentive to run more energy-hungry machines. We have seen the Bitcoin price hitting new all-time highs earlier this year, and that's why the energy consumption of the network is now also higher than ever before. Now, this energy consumption has multiple consequences, and the most obvious one is that generating the electricity that's used by the network produces emissions. And the majority of this energy has always originated from burning fossil fuels. And because of this, the emissions associated with Bitcoin mining are now more than negating the entire amount of net CO2 savings from deploying electric vehicles all around the world. And if you were to look at Bitcoin and Ethereum combined, Ethereum being the second largest cryptocurrency, then the total emissions would even amount to 100 million metric tons of CO2 per year. That's twice the net CO2 savings as a result of deploying electric vehicles. 
It's also 0.3% of our total global CO2 emissions as calculated by the International Energy Agency. And if the current global chip shortage wasn't holding back the growth of the network, we would be talking more in the range of half a percent of our global emissions at the current price levels. But as long as prices remain where they are today, we will probably get to that point soon enough. Bitcoin miners just love fossil fuels so much that China recently completely banned Bitcoin mining as idle coal mines were being revived for the purpose of mining Bitcoins. And in this case, that also happened illegally, directly leading to a loss of human lives as these operations lack proper safety precautions. In the US, Bitcoin miners were responsible for reviving an old natural gas plant in New York for the purpose of mining Bitcoins. In Montana, they closed a deal with a coal plant that was scheduled to be closed. And in Pennsylvania, miners even started burning waste coal, which is a lot worse than burning regular coal in terms of emissions. Additionally, a large chunk of the miners that were sent away from China appear to have found a new home in Alberta, Canada. A third of the entire Bitcoin network may actually be moving there to take advantage of leftover natural gas capacity. So that means that the network isn't turning greener, as proponents of the digital currency argue. The need for both cheap and stable power sources increasing drives miners towards obsolete and stranded fossil fuel sources. The fact that these miners are all looking for the same cheap sources also drives them to the same location, and that adds yet another consequence to the energy consumption as it can lead to a local grid becoming overwhelmed. You've seen power outages in countries like uh, Iran and Abkhazia as a result of the influx of Bitcoin miners. So people are literally left in the dark because of Bitcoin mining, and the consequences don't even stop there. In particular, Bitcoin mining nowadays requires highly specialized equipment to be competitive. That's typically short-lived equipment that cannot be repurposed at all. So the electronic waste that's ultimately produced by the network adds yet another layer on top of the sustainability issues of the network, which is something that no amount of renewable energy could ever address. Now, while tackling all these issues will not solve climate change, up to half a percent of our global emissions is obviously far from an insignificant amount, especially at a time when every ton of CO2 matters. And it also shouldn't be hard to see how this can rapidly spiral further out of control. The the data centers of the traditional financial sector handle more than 700 billion electronic payments a year. Bitcoin right now handles about 0.02% of that volume, while the energy cost already exceeds the former. So one can only really fear what happens if Bitcoin gets more mainstream adoption, because that will surely drive up the Bitcoin price and its environmental impact. Sounds like you're just about to come to a ringing close there. Alex, are you happy on that closing point? Yes. Just about to point out six minutes, but you let's, were ahead uh, of me. Let's keep There's it a that brilliantly that. trained participant in these things. Your body clock, if not your, your digital clock, got you out in six minutes. Thank you very much indeed. And of course, you'll have uh, time to complete some of those thoughts and, and reply to Lynn, who is going to now take over the floor from you. Lynn Alden, financial analyst, founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. She provides tens of thousands of investors with the latest research, information and tools to help them build wealth and manage their digital assets. One of the world's best-known Bitcoin advocates, her work has featured in the Wall Street Journal, Business Insider, CNBC, and much more. But Lynn, tonight, the Intelligence Squared crowd is your audience. Six minutes to convince them. Thanks for having me. Um, And so when we talk about Bitcoin, the first thing is to point out that, you know, 
it does have benefits for the world. And so it's, you know, a lot of us kind of come at this from kind of a privileged developed market perspective. But when we look, we take a step back, we look globally, why was it created? What is it? What is its purpose? And so the first thing is the fact that, you know, roughly half the world's population lives in some sort of authoritarianism, according to Freedom House. And also, if you look at, you know, the vast majority of emerging markets, well over a billion people, most of them have experienced uh, either hyperinflation or very, very high levels of double-digit inflation uh, sometime in their lifetimes. Uh, and so there is a very strong need for basically you know, some sort of currency that is stateless, that is permissionless, that can be sent without you know, a centralized third party being able to block those transactions and to have basically some degree of scarcity with that currency. And so that's that's why we've had you know 12 years now of rising popularity. Estimates show that over 100 million people in the world have used Bitcoin, uh, and that number continues to grow over time. And so that that naturally brings concerns about you know it's is proof of work algorithm because Bitcoin uses proof of work. The reason it does that complicated process is because that's what keeps it decentralized. Basically, work is what what verifies the blockchain rather than any centralized third party. And so Bitcoin is not designed on the base layer to be a rapid transaction network, although additional layers on top of it, like Lightning, Liquid, or custodial transactions built on top of that base layer can radically expand and are rapidly expanding its transaction throughput. But the main purpose is that decentralized savings and permissionless payments technology. Now, when we talk about the scale Bitcoin, as you know, we, we've seen a number of statistics cited already, but you know, University of Cambridge estimates that Bitcoin uses about 0.1% or less of global energy production. And so, but the concern is, what if that scales up? And in my view, it will scale up, and that'll be a good thing. But when we, you know, it's important to understand the details of how that scaling algorithm works, because every time a new block is mined, you know, as as the previous point out, miners receive a certain number of Bitcoin. But every four years, that number of Bitcoin they, they earn goes down. It's called the declining block subsidy. And so that's why Bitcoin miner revenue does not scale as quickly as the market capitalization. And so, for example, back in 2012, when the protocol is pretty new, miner revenue accounted for about 27% of Bitcoin market capitalization. By 2015, that was down to about 9%. By 2018, that was down to about 4%. And in the first half of this year, it was down to 1.9%. And over time, you know, after about a decade, that starts to approach only transaction fees. There's, you know, virtually all the Bitcoin are mined. And so miners rely on transaction fees, which so far have been a, a small fraction of 1% of Bitcoin market capitalization every year. And so basically it becomes more and more energy efficient every year as the initial 21 million coins are distributed and the system sh uh, shifts towards transactions. And so it's important to understand that long-term scaling rather than just, you know, the simplistic method of taking market capitalization and extrapolating it linearly exponentially, which I see a lot of journalists and economics people doing. And so, you know, lastly, a key thing to focus on is how Bitcoin uses energy. So Bitcoin is a buyer of last resort because it has two very specific qualities. One is that it can go into remote locations because it does not require high bandwidth or high personnel. And that's so it's unlike a data center. It's unlike some sort of manufacturing facility. It can go out to remote locations. It can even co-locate inside of nuclear plants, ge geothermal plants, hydroelectric dams, solar farms, a stranded natural gas. It can go out to these locations. And the second, you know, uh, feature of it is it can it can withstand periods of being turned off because it's not like a data center. Any one Bitcoin miner can fluctuate as long as it, it it takes that into account in terms of its contract pricing. And so what we see generally is that Bitcoin miners, especially as the markets become more mature, more efficient, 
has shifted more and more towards these agreements to take up excess supply. And so the way our grid works, and again, this is something a lot of journalists and economists miss, is that we have to produce more energy than we consume. Uh, otherwise, you know, turning on the marginal laptop would cause brownouts, right? So we have to have more, more production than we have consumption because we need that buffer. But a lot of renewable sources uh, are, are variable or always on, like solar, wind, geothermal, hydro, nuclear. And these naturally have these periods where they're producing more than the, the grid uh, in hundreds of miles can take at that current time. And so what we're starting to see more and more is that Bitcoin miners are co-locating and being able to basically absorb that excess supply. So when we calculate how much Bitcoin, you know, energy Bitcoin uses, that's largely non-rival energy. That's, you know, buyer of last resort energy to go into places where it's stranded. And even an, uh, an example earlier was stranded natural gas. And so according to Cambridge, you know, the world's stranded natural gas could power the current Bitcoin network almost eight times over. And what that means is there's these remote sites where they're getting hydrocarbons and they produce a little bit of gas on the side, but it's not economical enough to build a pipeline or take it. And so they literally burn it into the atmosphere. So Bitcoin miners go out and say, okay, you're going to burn it anyway. So sell to us for a very low cost and we will we will mine Bitcoin with it. And so I think you're going to increasingly see those sorts of things. And I'm actually excited for that because that can really incentivize renewable energy. And so at the current extrapolation, even if Bitcoin is 10 times bigger than it is now, because of the declining block subsidy, its energy usage will not be 10 times larger. And then even when it was, even if it does get to that point, it's actually a very you know, important aspect to the grid. This is a new type of energy buyer, which I think is going to actually unlock a lot of renewable energy that's available in the world. Also a perfect six minutes. You should do gymnastic routines, you two, because you're, you're uh, right on time and and in the space. Let's just dig into your arguments a bit while we get in a few more questions. The Q&A is looking quite lively. Let's talk a bit about your opposing arguments. I suppose starting with you, Alex, I wondered how much you felt that your argument was predicated really on energy sources, energy markets, and the climate change argument being as it is now, and how much of it you might be prepared to concede to Lynn if you were able to make great strides forward, as we hope will be able to, to happen in, in the near future, on the greatest sustainability of energy supplies and bringing, being able to, uh, to, to trade off cost and efficiency better than we have done. Would that change your mind a bit? Well, you know, for, for me, let's first of all talk a little bit about maybe uh, proof of stake because uh, before talking about should we be using uh, more renewables for this or not, you, know, you can actually ask the question, should we even be running proof of work at all or should we try to replace this algorithm with something that doesn't need uh, any, any energy in the first place? And I think for me, that is the natural starting point. Uh, can we do Bitcoin on a proof of that's also mentioned in the questions as actually Ethereum is working on huh, the second largest cryptocurrency. They're planning to migrate from their current proof of work algorithm to a proof of stake. And if they succeed, they just cancel out 99.95% of their energy need because there is no incentive to run energy-hungry machines in there. So you you get rid of the energy consumption, plus you get rid of electronic waste, you get rid of the impact on the global semiconductor supply chain because of machine demand, the whole the whole package. So if you can do that, yeah, and that that would be the perfect outcome. Huh? Then you still have Bitcoin as it is today, except you know the backend is just a lot cleaner. Now. 
there is an if to that. Huh? We, we don't know if Ethereum will succeed, that's one, and B, if they would succeed, whether that would be uh, implemented in Bitcoin. It could theoretically happen, but it doesn't have to. There might be a reason for Bitcoiners to start considering it if Ethereum uh, succeeds, but for now, this is still a bit of an uncertain terrain. So then you get to the question, okay, so what can we do right now to try and make this a bit more sustainable? Should we be working on trying to get more renewables in the network? And then the unfortunate thing is that there really isn't any mechanism to force miners to use more renewables. Miners will go where they can get cheap and stable energy sources and particularly the combination of those two because if you happen to own a Bitcoin miner you want to run it as much as possible all the time. These machines are typically becoming outdated pretty fast. Every one and a half years or so you get a new generation of machines so within that time frame you need to earn your money back, you need to maximize your profits. So you want to have your machines running all the time if possible. That's the way to maximize those profits. And in order to do that, you need a stable power source. And unfortunately, uh, there have been many talks of Bitcoin miners potentially using renewable energy sources like solar. Arkinvest did an entire calculation of how that could be done, but they had to state in that calculation that for, in order for that to work, those miners would have to be shut down during half the day because simply, yes, there is an excess during part of the day, but you know, during the night, you are having a Alex, we've got quite a lot there for Lynn to reply to. Yes. So if you just want to wrap up your point, then we can just get more of a conversation going between you. All right. I'll uh, keep it short from here. No, what the thing I'm trying to say is that even if you try to move this network to renewables, renewable sources just aren't the ideal power source. That's why we see these net these miners currently moving to actually obsolete or hard to use stranded, as Lynn said, natural or gas huh, or other types of fossil fuel sources because that can provide the combination of cheap and stable power. Okay, that's it. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, Lynn, over to you. You might want to take that last uh, thought first, just as it's uh, fresh in our minds that there was not a sufficient enough incentive for Bitcoin miners to to use sustainable power. And in a way, the whole market was sort of so distorted that it was unlikely that my naive idea that you could maybe just simply sort it by saying, well, you push people in a more sustainable direction might not work. We also had the question about Ethereum and uh, anything else you'd like to pick up. Yeah, so according to the Bitcoin Mining Council, their data source, uh, the Bitcoin network is already using a much higher level of renewables than any country's specific grid, or any large country's specific grid, especially the United States. Uh, and so it's already tilting in that direction. Two, you know, for example, Quebec has more spare hydroelectric capacity to power the entire Bitcoin network. And there's actually a pretty large concentration of Bitcoin miners there and more want to go there. But due to bureaucracy and, and basically delays, they're not allowed to. Right. And so that, that's basically they rather have chosen to waste that energy rather than have Bitcoin miners come in, use that energy. And so it really kind of comes down to Bitcoin miners are happy to go to these locations and it comes down to which sources are conducive to accepting them. And again, stranded natural gas is actually one of the cleanest energy sources because it's literally otherwise burned and sent into the atmosphere anyway. Uh, and so you might as well use it before it's wasted. Uh, and so actually that, that ends up being cleaner than if you were to build a solar array specifically to mine Bitcoin, because that does take energy to do. As for the proof of stake, you know, comparison, 
proof of stake is useful for a number of protocols out there, but it does make a large number of trade-offs compared to proof of work. Specifically, it ends up being more like a corporate structure where it's centralized around if you own more coins, you get more votes in the direction of that network, the monetary policy and any sort of changes. And so, for example, Ethereum is 70% pre-mined, right? So so 70% of the supply was given to the initial investors and creators, and then they, they're going to switch to proof of stake where people that hold the most of the coins will have a large uh, say in how that goes. Proof of work, however, is you know the combination of Bitcoin's distributed node network, distributed mining capacity, all these different kind of checks and balances in the system make it purposely resistant to changes. It takes you know a very high level of, of consensus, even among individual users with small amounts that are running their own full node, in order for that change to be able to go through. In addition, you know even even the Ethereum developers themselves uh, talk about the fact that you know proof of stake is far more complicated. It's like you know the the code base is like a thousand times longer. There's far more attack vectors that basically the, the the theoretical robustness is not as strong and so it can it can serve a number of roles for tokens that that act more like equities but it's less ideal for like a global distributed money like bitcoin well, that, that seemed to answer a question i was just going to press you on your view of ethereum really because that's something that's actually stalked uh, both of our debates that uh, came up uh, last yeah week I, would, I would say versus I, gold as well i mean it just it's, you you had a kind of contingent tone when you dis- discussed it. And you might also, I'm sure a lot of people on this call are great experts, but you might just try to nail the difference for us if you could. So Ethereum is is far more complex on the base layer because its main, main purpose is to do smart contracts. And so they started with proof of work. They're planning on shifting to proof of stake. And overall, I, because they, you know, because they did an initial coin offering, because they have these kind of centralized hubs of development and kind of long-term roadmaps, marketing budgets, I view them overall far more like equities. Same thing with 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 the theorems competing protocols, Cardano, Solana. I, I view these like kind of more centralized utility proof of stake type of directions to be more like equity. So people can choose to use that ecosystem if they want to use those smart contracts. Whereas Bitcoin is serving a very different purpose of essentially being an energy currency and especially one that is it doesn't really need incentives to go out and use these stranded energy sources or spare capacities. And for example, I I'm a, you know I have electrical engineering background. I've talked to a number of miners. They're, they're increasingly co-locating inside of, of hydroelectric dams, nuclear dams, uh, nuclear facilities. Basically, as the as the market class has gotten more mature, got more visibility, these large companies are starting to take it more seriously. And so we're seeing more and more kind of shift. They're happy to go into these places and start using these these wherever there's sources of spare capacity, whether it's renewable in many cases or in some cases stranded gas. That again, even though it's a fossil fuel. It's, it's basically would otherwise be burned and they come in and, and buy it. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
So just before we get into our uh, Q&A, I wonder just perhaps one or two thoughts, we'll keep it quite tight from each of you. Uh, Alex, what may be the arguments that you've heard from Lynn that you take most seriously or that perhaps test your own case? Well, you know, the the difficult thing is that when we're talking about proof of stake, there is indeed more trade-offs to be made than just environmental ones. Hey, it's not just like, okay, we go from one algorithm to the other and the only thing that really changes is the environmental impact. That would be ideal, but that's not how reality works. It's a very complex security situation. And, you know, in, in, in the thing that I always... That, that really bothers me is that Bitcoiners in general pretend as if proof of work is the ultimate way to do this type of distributed consensus algorithms. Because if you look at what's actually going on in the Bitcoin network, we've seen that over the past years, especially a majority of this Bitcoin network just ended up in China back in 2019, seven. 75% of the Bitcoin network, the entire network, all the machines were physically located in China. And such a concentration is actually a huge security risk because it doesn't matter whether you're on proof of stake or whether you're on proof of work. If an attacker manages to get a majority, it puts the network at risk. So in Bitcoin's case, if, the, if an attacker manages to get a majority of the machines in the network, it puts the network at risk. And having 75% under the potential uh, control of a single government because that government, the Chinese government, can just confiscate that equipment and start using that to paralyze the network. That is a big risk. And then uh, on top of that, 80% of all that hardware was being produced by a single manufacturer being Bitmain who already backdoored their hardware several years ago. That problem was known as Endbleed. Uh, it got discovered. I'm not sure I've yet, yet heard... Uh... The side of Lynn's argument that you found more convincing. Well, you know, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you can say that a change to proof of stake is not so easy or hey, it might not even be the right solution. But what I'm trying to explain is that, you know, even from, you know, if you look at other dimensions, other than the environment, there's also still issues with proof of work. So it's, it's, it's very complex, yes, but hey, it's not just that proof of stake it can be only superior in one way being the environment. It may be in more ways than one. That, I think, answers a question sent to us by Festus. So, um, or at least it answers it from Alex's point of view, probably not from, from Lynn's. Lynn, what I picked up uh, from that, please feel free to come back on any of that briefly and we'll go to the Q&A. But uh, what we haven't sort of touched on, perhaps a, you've touched on, but we, we haven't had a question about is uh, that it does give, of course, extraordinary power to the Chinese government, which has all sorts of other side effects, not least at the moment in terms of global standoff in geopolitics and trade. Is that something that worries you? The interesting thing is, so the, one of the reasons there was so much concentration of the miners in China is because they had so much spare energy capacity. If you looked at the University of Cambridge again, they, they tracked the provinces where those miners were. And whenever there was the wet season, about half a year, they a lot of them would flock to you know that area of China where they have all those overproduced hydroelectric dams. And again, that's that's if they don't use that energy, it's going to be curtailed anyway. And so those miners come in, they get those really cheap energy sources, and then they would move out during the dry season. And so basically that that, you know, 
Bitcoin kind of just goes to wherever the stranded energy sources is. And for a long time, that happened to be China. Uh, but as they increasingly connected their grid, and then as the Chinese government kind of you know, crack down on that, you know, Bitcoin miners fled out and kind of sought out these other places, whether it's natural gas, whether it's uh, hydroelectric in Quebec, whether it's co-locating with nuclear or solar facilities. We've seen that distribution. That's why it's funny because a lot of, say, Bitcoin bears were like, oh, China banned Bitcoin mining, whereas Bitcoin miners are like, this is great. We're seeing a, 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 a decentralization of the of the geopolitics of Bitcoin miners. So I like many other uh, people that are, say, bullish on the space, I consider that an overall positive. We also just saw Blockstream announced a large fundraising round where they're going to, uh, you know, uh, seek to build their own ASICs. So that should further decentralize not only the, the where the miners are located, but the the source of manufacturing and creation of those miners. And so I do think overall it is healthy to see that system become more decentralized over time. And I guess the last thing I would t- I would touch on is that you know we're still you know debating we're still kind of taking it as granted that using energy is a bad thing. Whereas it really comes down to the type of energy you use in the long run. And so actually, I would consider it a, in like a, literally a downside to you know potentially how fast renewable energies could grow if we didn't have a, a proof of work buyer like Bitcoin. Because again, the ability to, to basically be have a buyer of last resort to come in and buy spare capacity, that can lower costs for both the producer and the other consumers. Because you know that that spare energy that gets wasted now gets monetized and that, that makes it so the producer can charge less to other consumers. And so that can accelerate solar energy production. It can, you know, it can soak up all this, uh, you know, the natural gas waste. We see a lot of kind of novel use cases that Bitcoin's allowed to bring online because of its very unique capabilities that data centers and other things just aren't able to do. Right. Let's crack into some questions. Maynard Clark says, we could wonder about the ecological harms of a great many innovations, including ethically motivated ones, plant-based meats, cactus leather, fake leather, Etc. Fair point, Alex. Well, I don't think we're specifically worried about crypto. And if you look around in the world, you see that there are as many people worried about all kinds of things. It's uh, uh, the, the the thing is that we are dealing with a climate crisis. We need to reduce our emissions. We need to be better at using the energy we have. And I would say that affects every single industry out there and every single industry will have their own people uh, worried about what's going on there. So it's not like we should be focusing on just Bitcoin or just something else. I think it's important that we spread our attention and tackle all of those things. Uh, But of course, yes, Bitcoin is playing a role in that. It's growing rapidly. So Bitcoin should obviously be part of that as well. Well, right. Thank you very much. Over to you, Lynn. There's something I quite uh, just wanted to throw you something that was uh, it, it was along the lines of as the, the developing world uses more crypto, does that not mean that you know there's a bit of a, a tension there with the desire for more sustainable energy supplies that there would be a reliance on fossil fuels if that was spiking faster than developing countries were adopting more sustainable energy? Well, again, the adoption is not the same thing as where the miners are located. And so, you know, as was pointed out, it previously was the case a lot of the mining was in China, but 
adoption was global. And we see that now. I mean, a lot of the, the mining hash rate has shifted towards North America and other countries. But for example, we, we do see a ton of adoption among users uh, in places like you know Nigeria, uh, in places like Argentina, Venezuela, so it, it, Turkey. It is common to see a lot of those emerging markets, especially ones that have either suffered from high inflation or authoritarianism, basically, you know, protesters having their bank accounts frozen, things like that, to adopt Bitcoin. And so it is important to separate the users uh, from the miners because th those can be two very different things. I would like to see also see more mining happen in developing countries because it could benefit them economically. It can help them bring on some of their renewable energy capabilities because a lot of them do have, you know, uh, very rich resources for hydro or geothermal or, or desert for solar, for example. And, you know, the Bitcoin can potentially help them bring that online. And we, we start to see more and more that, you know, for example, Blockstream now has a, you know, a unit with, with Bitcoin miners in it. And it's for basically, you know, if someone sets up a solar facility, they can ship them that box. And basically, again, that box can absorb any excess capacity that the solar provides at maybe inopportune times when there's not demand for it to help that installation be more profitable. Uh, and so I'm really bullish on that kind of long term. And there's a, there's a question I'm just going to ask you to add a word on this, and then we'll flip both over to Alex about how Bitcoin compares to the traditional financial system in terms of emissions. Are you able to give us any estimate or scale of that? It's a very good question in terms of establishing a baseline here. So ARC had an estimate. I don't have it in front of me, but they, you know, their estimate was something like that the traditional financial system is like 27 times, you know, more energy than, than Bitcoin. Gold is more energy than Bitcoin. And that's, of course, when you take into account, you know, the, you know, millions of people working in, in finance, all the real estate associated with it, all of that kind of infrastructure built around it. And basically software can automate, not all of it, but a, but a very significant chunk of it. And so if Bitcoin were to ever go up, say, 10x or 20x from here, and even if it's if its energy usage starts, you know, get, getting anywhere close to one percent of global energy usage, that would basically eat probably a lot of the, you know, the the uh, basically inefficient legacy system that we see now, and and add a lot more productivity. Alex, is there anything on there you want to come back on? Yeah, well, I did see an estimate recently that put uh, the total data center energy use for the traditional financial sector at somewhere around 240 terawatt hours, which I thought was funny because the total data centers in the world, not also including the financial sector, is coming down to around 200 terawatt hours. So that's including the data centers for the financial sector. So you would expect that the total energy consumption of the financial sector is less than 200, even if it's the entire amount, then Bitcoin is already getting pretty close to that. And the thing is that the traditional financial sector produces or gen sorry, handles a lot more volumes. Huh? We are talking about a volume of more than 700 billion payments a year, uh, electronic payments, huh? not even talking about cash. Whereas Bitcoin, it's purely digital and handles maybe around 100 million transactions a year. So in proportion to each other, Bitcoin is doing maybe 0.02% of what the financial sector is doing and probably already using more energy for that than the regular financial sector. So it seems quite quite off. One thing I would counter to that is you have to include the millions of people working in finance and their large real estate that has nothing to do with their data centers. Second of all, when we look at, say, Bitcoin, you can't compare it to something like Visa. You have to compare it to something like Fedwire. So Fedwire is a settlement network. All these other uh, things like Visa or these other payment structures are on top of those settlement networks like Fedwire. Europe has their own system. You know, All these different places have their own kind of it's, – it's a layered system. And so what we see with Bitcoin is that it's a lot like Fedwire where it's this it's – this, 
relatively low volume, about 100 million a year, 150 million a year, but those transactions can be arbitrarily large. And so what we're seeing now is that with the development of the Lightning Network, which is fairly recent, it actually just kind of took off this year. It's been in development for about three years. That basically can make an arbitrary number of transactions batch down to a single on-chain transaction. And so the, the theoretical throughput of that is in the, you know, the millions of transactions a second. And so when you add that to say side chains like Liquid, which has a similar kind of scaling mechanism, right? We peg in Bitcoin and then you can trade this token in a federation, much like proof of stake, not not quite the same, but basically you can have this much more rapid interaction between these tokens and they can peg out to kind of secure themselves on the main chain. And then two, we see things like say Cash App comes along and, and that's a custodial scaling service. And so anyone that holds Bitcoin can send another can send Bitcoin to another Cash App uh, account for free because that's just updating a, a database inside of inside of Cash App. And so whether you want trustless scaling like Lightning or trusted scaling like Cash App, those are all being built on top of the Bitcoin base layer, much like Fedwire. Let's go a little bit broader, perhaps, into uh, some so- social impacts. So two sort of interlinked questions. I'll, I'll try to yoke them together and you should uh, answer it as you see fit panelists. From Julieta Dexter, do you think the potential positive social impact of crypto outweighs potentially negative environmental impact? And there was a question which was going to Alex, I'll go to Alex first, which along the lines of, do you dislike Bitcoin and crypto specifically? Would you change your position if it were used sustainably. So I suppose that's along the lines of, is there a more philosophical underpinning to your argument, or is it really about uh, data points uh, on environmental damage? Alex, why don't you take uh, one or both of those and then back to Lynn? Sure. Well, you know, do you just dislike Bitcoin? Well, I actually don't dislike Bitcoin at all. I think that Bitcoin, in essence, does do something unique, which is that it enables people to do decentralized payments had to do peer-to-peer money without the need for a government or without a financial institution. And you could easily come up with a use case for that because there are plenty of countries where people are struggling with corrupt authorities or institutions. And in that case, it sounds ideal to have something like peer-to-peer money. Now, a big problem right now is that Bitcoin isn't just struggling with you know the energy consumption, but also in terms of uh, scalability on the Bitcoin blockchain itself, the base layer, you can only put seven transactions per second at most, and the transaction fees of doing a Bitcoin transaction can go up to more than $60, which is a very big problem because where I see Bitcoin potentially having value is in the type of countries I just mentioned, but those are typically also low-income countries where people may have salaries of $2,500 a year or so. They cannot afford to use a system where using the base layer costs $60 or more. So in, in that sense, Having the maximum social impact is kind of made impossible by this other problem that is uh, scalability. And that's also, it's a completely separate thing. And we could also have a discussion on that. But uh, let me just summarize this as I do see a potential positive value in Bitcoin, just to say something nice. (laughs) There we go. Thank you. Thank you for saying something something nice. Uh, uh, Lynn, would you like to come back on that? I've got a, a... question that presses your case from yeah, Keith to I, come up. We'll keep this around pretty short. 
Sure. I would say that the, the social and governance attributes of Bitcoin as part of the ESG acronym are extremely valuable for those reasons, basically give those people access to a decentralized savings and, and payments technology. And what we see, for example, in El Salvador, right, because that's a it's an underbanked country, it's very impoverished, uh, a lot of political turmoil in their past. And the reason they've taken towards Bitcoin uh, prior to this announcement of it becoming legal tender, there's already you know a large experiment going on with Bitcoin Beach. Uh, and again, they were not using the base layer, they're using Lightning because they're using the appropriate tool for the appropriate situation. Kind of like how I don't use Fedwire to buy coffee. I don't use a $35 wire transfer to buy coffee. You know, if I were gonna, you know, buy coffee, I use a, a Visa card or cash. Whereas if I'm gonna do a small transaction with Bitcoin, I'm gonna use the appropriate tool, either a custody thing or or something like Lightning, where it's it's virtually free, a fraction of one percent of the of the cost of the transaction, you know, minimal. And you know those can cut down on remittance fees, right? So we see a lot of interest among developing countries that are that are reliant on remittances, whether it's El Salvador, whether it's a number of other countries. So I would say again, you have to use the appropriate tool for the for the purpose. And you know, it, it's basically I think it's very powerful for emerging markets and, and developing countries around the world. Uh, the, the challenge I wanted to, to give you from Keith uh, says, which I think is, is aimed at you, Lynn, if the examples you gave are true, then using fossil fuel, uh, then they are using fossil fuel energy, not renewable stranded natural gas can just be blocked off. It doesn't need to be put into the atmosphere, better uh, not to use it rather than to burn it. Uh, no, to, to clarify. Uh, to, and then it, it just goes on a bit. Blah, 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 blah. Um, sorry, Keith, it's just I, I have to gloss over some of the longer questions. Uh, they would much rather have fossil fuel than burn day and night, and that's bad for the economy. No, to clarify, the reason they need that, that stranded gas, so they're, they're getting the hydrocarbons, the, mainly the petroleum uh, that there is demand for, right? So they're getting, they're, they're mining oil. They're getting that out of the ground, and that comes with a small amount of natural gas. Now, if it's a big amount of natural gas, they can build a pipeline because obviously natural gas is useful. They can build a pipeline. They can do all that infrastructure, and they can get that natural gas with the with the oil back to refining facilities. The problem is that a lot of these have a very small of natural gas amount of natural gas with them, and it's not economic for them to do anything with it. Now, they still have to leave the well open because they're getting the oil out for other purposes totally unrelated to Bitcoin. And so they take that natural gas, and they say, well, you you know, we got to burn it. And and it's a shame because, again, University of Cambridge shows that that's the, the volume of that around the world is eight times the size of the amount of energy the Bitcoin network uses. And so basically, we can see that we can come in, we can use that to mine Bitcoin. And actually, that can reduce methane being leaked out because flaring that natural gas, burning it is not 100% efficient. Some of it gets in, out is methane, which is even more potent greenhouse gas. Whereas if you use it in to turn it into electricity and mine Bitcoin, it actually you know, reduces how much methane. That's why, for example, you know, Square's, you know, Bitcoin Clean Energy Initiative has, has you know, emphasized stranded natural gas. Jack Dorsey's talked about that a number of times because it does help reduce methane. And it's not, it's not gas that could otherwise just be left there because it's being pulled out with the oil that's going to other purposes. Thank you. Question from LCS in NYC. That's very mysterious. Proof of stake, proof of work. It seems like currently both platforms, Bitcoin and Ethereum, have whale ownership. Even if proof of work causes more equality, it seems like semantics at this point, the idea that crypto would make future financial systems more equal for the ordinary person seems like a pipe dream. Uh, Alex, is LCS in NYC uh, a position... You'd also agree with. Yes. Well, you know, I, I think in, 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 in uh, j- just to 
really quickly respond to the previous because I think what Keith also tried to say was that nowadays we have technologies like vapor recovery units that can actually help mitigating the flare gas issue at oil extraction sites. So why would we prefer to still burn it rather than uh, use those perhaps cleaner solutions? But uh, anyway, Keith can uh, comment on that uh, if, if I'm correct. Let's see. The other question you forwarded to me, and I think it just got put to the, <laughs> the dismiss side. <laughs> um, yeah. Will future financial systems be more equal for the common person? I don't think it really matters whether you have Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, because in either system, most of the wealth is uh, uh, ultimately controlled by a limited amount of people. It, it really doesn't matter whether uh, you go to Bitcoin or Ethereum. So short answer there. Lynn, do you yeah, want to would, come back on that? And then we'll, we'll yeah, I would say it's squeeze a lot, in the last couple of questions before we go to closing remarks. Sure. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say it's a lot more impactful for Ethereum because, again, proof of stake means that the people that hold most of the coins get to have control over the decision. It's kind of like if you run a company and you own 60% of the shares, you basically run that company. Whereas with Bitcoin, it doesn't matter if you're Michael Saylor or the Winklevoss twins who have you know over a billion in Bitcoin versus a small user because the amount of coins you hold does not affect your ability to influence the network. We actually saw this play out. It's not even theoretical. Back in the 2017 block size wars, we had a large number of exchanges. The, the large Bitcoin miner that was previously mentioned that owned a large portion of the of the mining uh, infrastructure, a number of uh, large exchanges, a number of big developers, uh, former developers, they were in favor of, of expanding Bitcoin's block size, which would have made it harder to run a full node, uh, harder for a smaller user to be able to verify Bitcoin, and then it would have increased the transaction throughput, which would have benefited the exchanges, would have benefited some of those other players. And that and they had at the, at the time 80% of the hash rate, Bitcoin mining hash rate on their side, and they still failed to get that through because of the distributed node network. And so that upgrade was never done. Instead, they went with a hard fork that ultimately pretty much failed in terms of market capitalization and usage compared to Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and other derivatives. They, they've had like, you know, five or six of the hard forks that tried that. And so it's actually shown through practice and in theory that it's resilient to those concentration efforts because it's, again, it's not relying on proofs of stake. And when we look at, you know, Bitcoin concentration, again, a lot of the large addresses that you see holding most of the tokens, those are actually exchanges and other custodial addresses that hold tokens for millions of people. And it, basically, if you have proof of stake, those custodians could then vote on their behalf, kind of like how Vanguard and BlackRock can vote on behalf of the large pools of index funds they have and influence policy. Whereas in a proof of work system, again, it doesn't really matter how many tokens you hold in terms of your ability to influence monetary policy or other policies on the network. Hal Ive, who's asked a couple of good questions, Hal, I'm at this point going to cut, cut to the, the, the chase on one because it's a good information point, which uh, I think it's good to bring out before we start to go to closing statements and see what our audience makes of, of the debate. What's the most used energy source for mining, excluding coal? Any numbers on that? Do you two even agree on uh, that question? What's the most used energy source for mining beyond coal? Alex? Uh, I guess we won't agree, but... Uh... Good, we booked you then, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so, what 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 was the most used energy source, or what will be the most used energy source? Because I, what I, is? Uh, it, he's gone it, for the present tense there, has Hal. So, uh, yes, well, the, I, I think yeah, did just give any a, a sort of situation as you understand yes, it. The, 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 the thing is that this this network is currently in a bit of a transition because China recently banned Bitcoin mining. So, before China banned Bitcoin mining, we had them using coal-based power during the winter time. 
wintertime and then during the summertime they were using hydroelectric power so those automatically became the biggest sources of energy in the network because that's where the majority of the network was now that has changed china kicked these miners out and now they're relocating elsewhere particularly notable alberta canada where they are probably going to house maybe up to a third of the network and that's all going to be powered by natural gas so you know even if natural gas isn't the primary source of energy at the moment pretty soon it will be right uh, lynn just a answer to to that from your point of view most energy so use source sorry for mining excluding coal yeah, so we're seeing a mix. It is true that in China, it fluctuated depending on dry season, wet season between hydro and coal. And so now that we've had this excess out of China, you know, there's there's different variants. You know, so some sources show about 40% of it's renewable. Other sources show up to about 70% renewable if you look at the Bitcoin Mining Council data. And so there's a, a varied number of, of sources. I would say the natural gas probably is going to be a large portion. But again, a lot of that's going to be stranded natural gas rather than natural gas that's that's produced specifically for Bitcoin, all those, you know, around the margin, some of it is, we can always pick out anecdotal examples of, you know, a, a, a plant that was going to go offline and instead is brought back on. Because again, Bitcoin's a buyer of last resort and it says, okay, there's a super cheap thing, we can use that. But we also see again, I mean, if, if Quebec opened up, you know, we see a lot of Bitcoin mining in Quebec using a lot of their hydroelectric resources. If they were to open up, you know, they, Bitcoin miners would happily go there. We also see uh, nuclear being increasingly used uh, for sources because that's an always on, you know, carbon free source. And, you know, basically any amount that's produced that's not consumed within a certain number of, of, of amount of distance would be wasted. And so, you know, Bitcoin miners can go and co-locate with them. Uh, I know miners that are doing that as we speak. And so I think we're going to see a pretty distributed type rather than any, any, any one kind of dominant factor. I've got a challenge to you as we come towards the close, and uh, we're going to vote uh, in just about four minutes, so please stay with us. But I've got a, a cheeky question here, really, a comment from Alan Mayo, but I think it will set you up nicely for a very sharp, no more than two minutes maximum, please, closing. We're going to go to Lynn first. But Alan says, this debate is unintelligible to me as a layman. I'm no wiser than I was at the start. Well, it is inevitably, you know, a certainly complex area with a, you know, with a lot of uh, specialised language and jargon. But it does remind us that we started with a pretty simple crypto versus the environment question. So I, I could uh, perhaps ask you both to try to address Alan's point there and just keep it as uh, broad in conversation as you can. And sorry, I, Lynn, I said I was going to go to first as, as uh, Alex started us off tonight. Crypto versus so, the environment. Sure. So to summarize it, I would say that one, Bitcoin brings a large number of benefits to people, specifically the ability to use permissionless payments, to have a savings technology that's separated from an inflationary currency, which in many countries is very severe, and with additional layers that becomes increasingly efficient, is already doing so in, in many of those emerging markets. We, we keep seeing more and more of those places incorporate lightning into their payments network. And so it does bring a host of benefits. Then it does use energy, just like many other industries. It's comparable to the zinc industry. It's currently less than the cruise industry. You know, it, it's, it's basically, you know, we can use headlines like it uses as much electricity as Sweden, but it sounds a lot less sensational when you say it uses as much electricity as zinc or less than the cruise industry, right? So you can do country comparisons, you can do, you know, industry comparisons, but, you know, there's an order of magnitude more Bitcoin users than Swedish citizens. So it's not surprising that the, the network uses a lot of like uh, more energy and that it's important to keep in mind that it's mostly non-rival energy 
is, you know, so it, it kind of flows to wherever there's sources of production that are not being used for one reason or another. Could be stranded gas, could be could be hydro that's not used, could be you know periods periods during the week where nuclear and solar energy are just not being heavily used. So it's getting increasingly efficient. Basically, Bitcoin miners go to wherever there is uh, the cheapest source of electricity, and those cheap source of electricity tend to be places where the, there's a supply demand mismatch between that electricity. So it kind of fills in the gaps. Great. Uh, flip straight over to Alex, please. I, I, I like Alan's uh, challenge. I think it's a very complex issue. And, you know, the thing is, we are dealing with digital money that is in essence not that different from digital dollars, except there is no government or other authority in control of your money. And in order, you know, to make this system run, we need the world's largest random number generator that's consuming more electricity than a country like Argentina. And obviously, having a whole lot of emissions along with that uh, to produce all that energy. Now, the system itself might have some value for people around the world, but in all honesty, Bitcoin isn't really delivering that at the moment because it is extremely limited in terms of scalability. You know, the dollar can be used by anyone, but Bitcoin can handle seven transactions per second on the base layer. It's not a lot. It's extremely expensive. It's slow. It's just not really capable of delivering a whole lot of value other than speculation. But in the meanwhile, we do need that massive random number, random number generator running in the background that just grows as the value of Bitcoin grows in size. It's not related to any actual security need of the network. It just goes up as the Bitcoin price goes up. And that's the unfortunate situation we're in. And we can hopefully fix that by changing the software so at least Bitcoin can serve its niche function without having this environmental impact. But in order to do that, we first need to get agreement within this community on the best possible change to make to this software. Thank you very much, Alex. And you addressed a question from Keith about uh, Argentina and Bitcoin mining using more electricity than Argentina along the way. So we've got another question in there without even having heard it. Right. Let's move to the vote. Is crypto a threat to the environment? You know the drill. Yes, no, undecided. Please vote. And now... I'd like to remind you, this is the second in the Intelligence Squared crypto series. If you enjoyed us, do join the third. Crypto can bank the unbanked is the proposition Peter McCormack and Yaya Fanusi on September the 9th. And of course, if you register on the Intelligence Squared website, you can catch the first fiery debate, uh, Bitcoin versus gold with Anthony Scaramucci and Peter Schiff. Right. Reminding ourselves the pre-vote was 40% yes, 20%, 26% no, and 34% undecided. The final vote is 32% yes, 43% no, and 25% undecided. So there was a pretty sharp move there in the direction of the no's. And they came, I think, yeah, well, they came from both the original yeses and the undecideds. So, yeah, people were changing their minds as they went along. Thank you very much for your questions. I got through as many as I, I could. They were excellent questions. I'm sorry if I, I didn't get to all of them, but of course, you can continue that debate on Twitter. 
But I would most of all like to thank our speakers to uh, Lynn Alden and Alex Therese. Fascinating debate and the audience, of course, for, for coming along tonight and uh, pushing us all along with your questions and partners, Equinex, for staging the debate and supporting the series. Thanks for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed it, learned something from it, and that we managed at least to demystify some of the jargon along the way. Thanks very much.